Go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join the madness. <laughs> Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 938. Today we hear from Ed, who asks... I have a follow-up on episode 926 on historical research. Hmm. How does one best balance historical accuracy and modern sensibilities, particularly in a hybrid genre like historical fantasy? For example, if I set a book in the American 1800s and there are black characters involved then, like Mark Twain does, they should be referred to as niggers. But if I say... Only by certain classes of people, though. But if I try to publish that book in the 2020s and use that term, I might as well throw the book in the trash. Maybe the hardcore historical fiction readers will be okay with it, but I doubt the bulk of historical fantasy or historical romance or any of the other blended genres will. I'm sure there are other examples where the modern reader sensibilities make it all but impossible to sell a book that would be accurate historically. So, what do we do? Um, it's, well, okay, so I don't know that subgenre very well. I don't know the market or the audience. So, you're going to have to take what I say with a grain of salt. Um... It's not a priori impossible to sell a book like that right now because Greg, uh, a book with that kind of language in it right now, because Greg Isles has just done an amazing trilogy about the clan in the South in the modern day. And those words are all over those books. And he uses them exactly as they would be used in that context, and he's unapologetic about it. And race is race, racism and race relations and race wars are a subject of the book. Mark Twain got a lot of crap for that when he wrote um, uh, Huck Finn back in the 1860s. Uh, it was mm-hmm. 10, 15 years after the Civil War. No, it was 20 years. Wasn't it the 1880s he wrote that, wasn't it? He wrote that quite a ways after the Civil War, and he got a lot of crap for that. So a lot of it, you do want to get to know who your genre audience is, and unfortunately I don't know that audience, so I don't know what kind of crap they'll give you for that, or or how intense it'll be. So you and may want to find that. And the other thing is, you just got to decide what you're willing to put up with. Another thing to keep in mind, Dan mentioned it briefly while I was reading the question, is that the term nigger was never a polite term. No. Even in the 1800s, it it was a slur for the proper term, which at the time was Negro. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do choose to use words that were and are still slurs, you would want to use them in the context of them being slurs. You don't want to assume that something that is a slur now was used frequently and commonly in the past because the past was more racist or something like that. Um, polite upper-class people would still use polite upper-class words even for people they did not like. Unless... Or- they were part of a class that was interested in the oppression of the class they're slurring. 
that's a really important uh, it's a really important caveat and you can see this uh, for example all the way up into the 1990s when it was very very common to hear even after the term nigger went way into forbidden territory for a public figure to use with regards to a black person you would still hear white niggers used which was a really derogatory term for what was the less derogatory term of white trash which is still incredibly derogatory mm. So, yeah, you want to get a handle on your slurs. And if you are using language that is a slur now, or is at least eh now, but wasn't then, you want to establish that it wasn't that way at the time that the story takes place, usually through context. So, like, at the moment, um, and I had this, okay, I had this experience with one, one of my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, not a racist bone in their bodies, spent their entire lives doing mission work and living entirely in the company of South American Indians and African blacks and South American Latinos mm. and preferred that life to life back among all the white folks in the U.S. But they come from a time where racial groups were much more commonly collectivized in everyday speech. So my grandmother was at one point flummoxed by um, rap music, because it was a totally new phenomenon to her when she came back to the States in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. And someone who grew up in my era, who wanted to ask the question, what is this self-destructive music coming out of this section of society, would ask about black, what's going on with black culture right now. Mm -hmm. And she asked, what's going on with the blacks right now? And, oh boy, did I bristle. And I had to stop and think and go, that was, that, was the, that was the polite way to ask that question when she left the United States in the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> so there's going to be stuff like that, stuff that was polite and even magnanimous and liberal, at one point, that is now considered somewhere between insensitive and a slur. Uh, good, good point. You're actually going to have more problems using the words that were the polite words then, but aren't the polite words now. Right. Like Negro and colored and the blacks. Mm -hmm. And wor words like that were the common and polite terms at one time. Mm -hmm. And so what you want to do with those words is you want to establish them as the polite way that people are referred to and people exchange them. Um, I don't know. What's the, it's not an epithet if it's not derogatory, um, even though technically epithet just means nickname or name. Um, but the way that groups refer to each other. Mm -hmm. the pol you want to establish the polite ways as the polite ways through context and dialogue pretty early on in the book so that your audience understands that this is a historical thing and that this is part of that culture and that it wasn't a slur, whereas this other word that everyone's really sensitive about always was. Um, and you know, the only time it might not have been used as a deliberate slur and just out of habit is by poor white trash, because poor white trash, as the name implies, were not, or as their alternative uh, epithet implies, were not exactly educated in the ways of gentility, mm. yeah. and didn't care, which is another important part. Mm. Um, they 
didn't have a lot of direct social intercourse with the black community of the time. And when they did, it wasn't generally very pleasant, because after slavery, after about 15 years post-Civil War, the black community really came together, especially in the South and the Midwest and all across the Old West, and became a financial and cultural powerhouse that was then beaten back and driven underground quite a lot between the overt racist actions of things like the bombing of Tulsa and race wars that flared up periodically, and then by do-gooders who wanted to institute social programs to help urban blacks out and wound up instituting social programs that actively went quite a ways into keeping the black community down and fragmented. And if you want to learn about that, read Malcolm X. He was a very, very good critic of that particular kind of white saviordom. It's a thorny subject, and like you said, different audiences may have different appetites and willingnesses to tolerate it. Not just the content itself, but also the way it's presented may be a make-or-break for you. In, in terms of other issues um, that can be problematic to modern sensibilities, anything... Gotta it, hate that term. It's, it's rankling. It's not problematic. It's, it, they'll say it's problematic, but what they mean is, it offends me, or it bothers me. Yeah. So let's call it what it is. It's rankling. Other things that might irritate modern sensibilities would be things like sexual mores in, mm-hmm. in other cultures and other times. And, and gender roles. Gender roles and how we approach food and what's acceptable to eat. And attitudes towards animal husbandry and slaughter. Mm-hmm. There, there's a matter-of-factness to non-urban life and non-suburban life mm-hmm. that is really foreign to the modern person, especially younger modern people. I've got a great example of this one, too. Oh. I've got a cousin who bred Airedales for a long time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> very, very conservative cousin from a very, very conservative wing of the family, like flirted with being Amish most of her life, conservative. And when um, some of us West Coasters came out mm-hmm. to visit, she was talking about her um, talking about her uh, breeding practices because we were all curious because we'd never been breeders. And so she would talk about when it was time to get her bitch on heat or what would happen when her bitch got on heat. And all of us who are used to hearing that term, even though we all knew it means a female dog of breeding age, mm-hmm. uh, particularly one who's been bred, even though we all knew that dictionary-wise, we all had this <laughs> every time she said that until we got used to it because we're used to bitch just being a slur for woman. Mm. And so you'll get those things. I didn't mean to completely derail oh, your oh, train no, of thought. I, it just seemed like a good example of what you were talking about. Oh, yeah. I, I was just giving other examples of um, other things that can, can rankle hmm. modern sensibilities. And there's really a lot of them... Uh, Racial slurs are hardly the tip of the iceberg yep. <laughs> of things that can offend people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, It's an, just the yeah, most obvious. Yeah, animal husbandry and slaughter really jumped out at me because at the moment our farming system is incredibly brutal. And what would, what would be looked at in any other period of history is downright barbaric. But because... We are removed from the process by that wonderful, pretty layer of cellophane in the grocery store. 
it doesn't occur to us what goes into slaughtering and butchering an animal, and what might qualify as a humane and decent way to do it, as opposed to just a brute force, nasty way to do it. I, I know people who will not buy meat that has bones in it, mm-hmm. and especially roasts that vaguely look like an animal. Like, they can't buy a whole chicken mm-hmm. or bone-in chicken because it reminds them that an animal was killed mm-hmm. to be eaten. But they can't be... They can't bring themselves to be vegetarians because they like the taste of meat. And need the protein. And It's very hard to get enough protein as a vegetarian unless you're getting um, the the modern manufactured soy proteins that are engineered to have a complete protein in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, and you go out into rural land for a while, as we have, and you kill your own food, you tend your own animals, mm-hmm. and your value system just inverts. Um I would much rather eat animals that I kill, and it's not because I like killing the animals, it's because I know where it comes from, and I know it was done right. Mm-hmm. And um, when I go to the st- when I'm obligated to go to the store because I don't have the option, I'm somewhere that doesn't have the freezer space or something, I always or get... doesn't have enough land to or put a cow have, in. Yep. I always get a little uh, uncomfortable, because... I know what the factory farm system is like, and it's not just that I know the food is less nutritious because of the way they feed these animals. I know what kind of lives these animals had, and what kind of deaths these animals had, because I have studied the um, slaughter and butcher process in the industrial context as opposed to the small farm context, and I don't like it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you're you're living... You're getting people living off the land in the 1850s, 1860s, or farming, you're going to have a lot of stuff like that, too. And, it, again, figuring out what kind of crap you want to put up with from your audience this is going to be a lot of it. And what you're going to say when you get crap from them about it. Because there's sometimes you'll get crap that's just disingenuous and or blinkered. And there's sometimes you'll get crap where it's really, really earnest, like someone really likes your story, but they're bothered by this thing. And those are the fan emails, the reviews, or whatnot, worth responding to. Because you can share your reasoning process, and you can build goodwill. Mm-hmm. At least, that's the way I think about it. Guess that's all we got. Thanks very much for the question, Ed. Always great to hear from you. We'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation, submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat, or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.